0: Our scripture reading this morning is uh, us continuing in this Sermon on the Mount series, uh, seeing what God's uh, will for our our life is today and all his disciples. And we're up to Matthew 5, uh, beginning at verse 27, and this section goes through verse 30. This is God's holy and infallible word. This is Jesus continuing to preach this sermon on the mountainside there long ago. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. That's God's word for us this morning. So Jesus brings us from the sixth commandment last week, do not murder, to the seventh commandment this week, do not commit adultery. And he says again, you have heard it said, but I say to you, he says that not to contradict the Old Testament, but to correct bad human interpretation of Scripture that was leading God's people astray. Uh, the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees, the scribes that the Gospels tell us about, uh, were oversimplifying God's call for holy living by making the commandments just about external actions, stuff other people could see when, in fact, they go deeper, those commands. God cares about what's going on inside of us, too. Anger and now lust are heart issues. What Jesus says here, it's a, it sounds like it's approaching this issue in a very negative way. But God's word says a lot more on this topic than only do not do this or that. And so the plan this morning is we want to try to see the full biblical picture of, of this command and this aspect of our lives. And, and what we're going to do is we're going to first of all look at, at two approaches to intimacy. And this is sexual intimacy we're talking about this morning. Two approaches that will get us off track from God's design. And then we'll see how God's plan for purity is good and how it can be followed and enjoyed in our lives. First of all, we see right away that Jesus' words here fly in the face of the culture we're living in. Our culture does not value purity. Our culture... On the other extreme of that really, it seems to flaunt promiscuity. Promiscuity is being overly casual about intimacy. The broader culture of Jesus' day, uh, we call that, historians call that the Greco-Roman culture. Uh, The Romans were in power, but a lot of influence of Greece was there. It's the Greco-Roman culture. That culture was said to be one of the very most promiscuous cultures in all of history. And and we get a little sense of that in, in 1 Corinthians, written to the church at Corinth, that's in Greece. Paul had to tell them, hey guys, don't use prostitutes. He had to reprimand the church, a man in the church, about having his father's wife. These are things that are so obviously wrong, but... When promiscuity is all around us, God's people can get off track from God's good design. Already, you know, in the 1970s, scholars were saying that our American culture was beginning to rival that ancient culture in how immoral things were becoming. Now, we're 40 years further down that path, and and it ain't pretty if you're looking for purity. Our culture scoffs, scoffs at Jesus' calling here against lust and against adultery. Scoffs. Lust? What is wrong with that? Lust is natural. Lust is part of being a human being telling us lust is worthy of hell is just a ridiculously old-fashioned idea, says our world today. For people who are distant from God, this is just as ridiculous as saying, stop eating or you're going to go to jail. Lust is natural. Everybody has it, everybody does it, they say. So how could it be wrong? I'm not old enough to remember this Uh, Maybe some of you do, or you've heard about it. Jimmy Carter, our president Jimmy Carter, uh, who was very open about his Christian faith, he famously once shared that he struggled with lust, and he was ridiculed for that. I think there were Saturday Night Live skits for three weeks running, making fun of him. And that was in the late 70s. That was a long time ago. People don't think lust is a struggle, They think it's something to be celebrated. Intimacy is something for any two consenting adults of any gender, we might add, but that's a whole different topic. Any two consenting adults should be free to engage in whatever they want, whenever they want. Teenagers should be free to explore their bodies with one another. That's just part of healthy maturing. So our culture wrongly Believes and wrongly tells us. Something different than what two consenting people do together is viewing pornography. It was reported three years ago now, in 2013, that porn websites get more visitors each month than Netflix, Amazon, and Twitter combined. Think about how big those websites are. So people are accessing this stuff all the time. All the time. Uh, we live in a much different world than the generations before us. And as virtually anybody can access inappropriate photos, videos, within seconds, within seconds of beginning to search for it. And of course, that group of everybody, anybody can access includes teenagers with raging hormones. People are starting to realize that this is dangerous. Just on April 8, uh, a major newspaper, I forget which one, but they brought up and wrote about a lot of evidence that pornography is damaging, and actually a a Time magazine cover story just on April 11, a couple weeks ago, brought up the same thing. Actually, not coming at it from a Christian perspective at all, but scientific evidence over the last 40 years, when this has dramatically increased, is telling us that exposure to pornography threatens our social, emotional, and physical health. This culture that we live in of promiscuity has all sorts of negative impacts, obviously, that we couldn't begin to fully get into this morning. But I want to mention a couple thoughts. I read an article recently that made a connection between the culture of lust and young men getting married later, or not at all. There are a lot of reasons for that trend of of people getting married later, of course, but some of it may very well have to do with our changing views of what is beautiful. Men see women in media who are almost artificial. They're photoshopped in a lot of cases. So the culture's ideas of beauty are what we're feeding on instead of reality. And if we're consuming media constantly, well, then what the culture is giving us is what we will want And nothing else is going to satisfy. All the more so if we're consuming pornography. And so when young men, and women too, but I'm thinking especially of young men, start to date and look for a spouse, they see real women in front of them, and maybe they won't find a normal person attractive like they should. Reality might not quite do it for you if your appetites have been shaped and twisted by a culture that celebrates promiscuity and lust. Another article recently written reported on a study of what women want and what men want in terms of traits uh, for prospective spouses. And they compared a 1939 study with the 2008 study. A number of looked-for traits went up in importance over those years, and other ones went down. What went up and became the number one trait that both men and women in our culture are looking for today is that they have a spouse who is physically attractive. Physical attraction, number one for both men and women in the 2008 study. For women in 1939, dependable character was number one, and then emotional stability was number two. Also, for men in 1939, those were the top two. Emotional stability was one for men, and dependable character was number two. Now, physical attraction, number one of 18 traits that were listed that people are looking for. What went down, and it became dead last of all traits that both men and women are looking for today in a spouse, is chastity. It's another word for purity. Dead last for men and women and what they're looking for in a mate. Jesus is telling us that this path of lust that our culture relishes threatens our spiritual health. What becomes clear, and it's being recognized even by people who aren't Christians, that promiscuity, going after intimacy with no bounds, no limitations, you know what? It never delivers. Lust does not Give you what it promises to give. When Jesus says hell here, it's interesting, he's using the word Gehenna, and that's one of the biblical words to refer to hell, but it was actually in that day the garbage dump outside of the city of Jerusalem. That's where you put the garbage, it was burned, and that's one of the pictures the Bible gives us of what hell involves Jesus is telling us that if we don't learn to keep this part of our humanity under control, it will suck you in, it will toss you on a garbage heap to smolder and rot in your life. Lust will mess you up if you don't respect it or treat it the way God calls us to. This intimacy is mysterious, it's awesome, it's not easily controlled, it's powerful. Things will fall apart in your life if you don't get this. The world scoffs at the idea of purity. It's just part of our humanity. Do what you want. Watch what you want. It's no big deal. But that's totally false, friends, students, boys and girls. It's untrue. This intimacy that we're talking about is powerful. It's different. It's special. Reverend Tim Keller says if you want Evidence that it's not just something else in life. Look at our popular music. You know, if you're thinking about uh, hip hop, dance, regular pop, country, rock, think of all the songs you know and hear on the radio. Now divide those songs up into the different topics. How many of those songs are about our jobs? They're all pretty much about love. And relationships, right? There's something different about this stuff. And, and there, there's so much bad poetry and bad lyrics that that come out of thinking about these topics. You know, Ed Sheeran has this lyric. I know you love Shrek because we watched it 12 times, but maybe you're hoping for a fairy tale too. Eminem. Now you get to watch her leave out of the window. Guess what, that's why they call it window pane. Selena Gomez, I love you like a love song, baby. And one of my favorites, it goes back a ways though from Toto, as soon as forever is through, I'll be over you. People know deep down, though the culture of promiscuity denies it, that love and relationships and intimacy They're different than other things in life. They make us burst out in bad songs and bad poetry. They make pagan people who don't know God talk and sing about eternity. To scoff at the danger of lust is a mistake. It can take you over and it can ruin you if you don't respect it. Secondly, this morning, not only pagan promiscuity misses the biblical mark, prudishness does too, for lack of a better word, prudishness. Jesus' way, in other words, is not to deny our desires. Jesus doesn't say here, do not look, though he could have as a solution. To look is not the issue. To find someone attractive is not a sin. But to lust is, to look lustfully is literally to keep on looking. Some Sometimes it's referred to as a leering look. And one person says it's a look that's not casual but persistent. The desire is not involuntary or momentary, but it's cherished. It's about the imagination going places. Some people in response to the power of intimacy have have gone so far as to say we need to deny or squelch our desires. Cover women up from head to toe. That's the best thing we can do. Or separate men from women. Shut down our desires. An example of this is, is monks or nuns living in monasteries or making all priests celibate. Now, Some people are called... To celibacy in life, for sure. But to force a whole group of people to be celibate, it doesn't go well. It doesn't make sense because God created us with desires. The Bible doesn't deny human desires. Almost the opposite. In a lot of ways, the Bible celebrates this gift. We read that God invented it. First chapter of the Bible God created male and female, the difference of the genders, and and we read after that that God blessed that, and he said it was good. And then in the very next chapter of the Bible, God introduces naked Eve to naked Adam, and they were both before God together, and Adam was quite happy about this, to the extent that if you look at verse 23 of chapter 2 of Genesis, he breaks out into poetry, because You can't help but do that when you're confronted with this good gift of God. And then we read that God instituted marriage right there. If everyone here in the sanctuary were a teenager or older, I'd read some select parts of Song of Songs where there's this celebration of love between a husband and wife. But there's language there that's very amazingly open about a husband and wife appreciating one another physically. Sexual desire is not wrong, but it's a good gift of God. And so we miss Jesus' way if we're overly prudish. That misses the goodness of intimacy in God's sight. But if you promiscuously do whatever, you're missing Jesus' way too. Then you're not respecting enough this part of God's creation. Both of those extremes miss that this type of intimacy is something very, very special in God's design. Our passions can be channeled by knowing Jesus. The Bible tells us there's something, there's a special word and name of Jesus in God's word in a number of places that can really help us on this particular matter, I think, that can help us channel our passions in God's way. One of the names of Jesus, we don't talk about it a ton, is bridegroom, that he is the bridegroom. And and Tim Keller, I mentioned before, says some helpful things about this. Jesus is our king. We talk about that a lot. That's really good. We bow the knee to him. We're called to obey the king And then he's our savior because we can't obey on our own. We need his righteousness, says God's word. And that's the righteousness that's even greater than the religious leaders that Jesus talked about earlier in Matthew 5. Anyone who believes in Jesus is perfect in God's sight because they've been given that righteousness, purchased on the cross, won at the resurrection. Besides being our Savior and our King, Jesus is our bridegroom. He is the lover of our soul, says God's Word. You think about a wedding. A bride and a bridegroom. The, the groom standing below, waiting for the bride, watching as she comes down the aisle. That's the picture God is giving us. We are, by grace, the bride. Jesus is the groom. That's how he looks at you. And when we get some understanding of that, we get to a whole other level of what the good news of Jesus is all about. We're sinners. We've messed up, especially in the area of lust. We've all committed adultery one way or the other, says Jesus. We're dirty. But he cleanses We're his pure, spotless bride now because of his finished work. He loves us unconditionally. And when we get this, it will start to give us the view of intimacy that we need. It won't totally run your life. You won't worry as much about your looks changing as you age. If you're married, you won't get bitter and jaded and your expectations for marriage will be balanced. Your desires won't burn you up and spit you out. And it's because he loves you. He fulfills you. He can literally say, and he is the only one who can say it and mean it, that he will love you for all eternity. Anyone else may think they mean it, but they're lying. No one else can say that. He has that eternal love that all the singers croon about, literally. All other love flows out of that and can become healthy and channeled correctly when you know the lover of your soul first. Lust is an inordinate desire, we could say. That's uh, a desire that's out of control. It's like a drug. Lust tells us we have to have more and more of it, but yet it never fulfills. It doesn't satisfy, of course, because we're trying to get from it something that only God can give. You know, and that's why I think non Christians talk about intimacy almost like a religion. It's mysterious. It's cosmic. It makes you think of the eternal. Well, that's making too much of this gift of God. That's making an idol of it. Trying to get out of it only what Jesus has for us. But you know, not only the world uses intimacy as an idol. You and I in the church can too. If you're married... And you're looking to your spouse for something that only God can give, there will be problems. You're not going to get that. That's not going to work out. If you're single and thinking a husband or wife is going to be the answer for your life, you're wrong. That level of desire and need that each of us has can only be fulfilled in Jesus, the lover of our soul. We can't try to get out of other people what only our God gives. Talk about this being a gift of God that he created, right? Well, the gifts of God, whatever they are in life, they are not meant to be ends in themselves. We don't, they are to point us to the giver. Intimacy is, the stuff we're talking about, that Jesus is here, it can be so potent, it can make us get stuck on it and focused there because it's such an awesome gift. But when we know the heavenly bridegroom in our lives and find our fulfillment in him, then we can channel that gift and use it like all the great gifts of God in God's intended way. I want to end with a few practical thoughts. I I always hope every part of every message is practical for our lives, but I want to end with a few specifics. Uh, The first is this. Mortification. Morta what? Mortification is a key to beating lust. And this is about those drastic measures that Jesus... uh, tells us to take to stop lust mortification if your eye causes you to sin gouge it out if your hand causes you to sin cut it off is this literal well there aren't too many christians that i've seen walking around missing an eye and a hand so no it's not literal a church father Origin in the 3rd century, in order to be closer to God, he renounced his possessions, food, he renounced sleep, and in an overly literal interpretation of this passage, and then also Matthew 19, 12, he made himself a eunuch. Not long after that, uh, a church council, the council of Nicaea, said no, they forbade forbade that. (laughs) They forbid it. Um, And the church said, Jesus did not mean that we literally cut something off. And that's how the church has seen this. It's not literal. An English teacher would tell us this type of language is hyperbole. And with hyperbole, Jesus is teaching us to ruthlessly deal with our sin. Ruthlessly deal with your sin. And the word for that is mortification. Not mutilation. Mortification. And it means put to death. Colossians 3.5 is one of a number of scripture passages that tells us, it says, believer, put sin to death. Put sin to death. This is a spiritual discipline. It's about taking up our cross, Following Jesus, we reject sin in our hearts and lives. Jesus is saying we have to be clear and ruthless in dealing with all our sin, and certainly with lust we are. The eye is mentioned because lust starts with the eye, and from what we see, our imagination starts to go to work. Someone said, No sensual sin was ever committed that was not first imagined. And so we don't want to look at things that will cause us to sin. Again, Jesus doesn't say, don't look at a woman, guys. men, uh, Women doesn't say, don't look at a guy. He could have said that. The problem is that prolonged look or that second look, guys, whether you, you're turning your, your, your head around or... As you drive by, adjusting that that rearview mirror, someone you pass by, you want to take a second look at, it's that prolonged look. It's the second look. Cut it off. King David went out on his rooftop, we read, on a nice night. Uh, Long ago, he looked out, he saw a beautiful woman across the way taking a bath. Now, him going out on the roof and happening to have seen Bathsheba, that's not necessarily the problem. It would have been a problem, I guess, if he knew she was out there, but... The problem was continuing to look, imagining things in his mind to such an extent that he committed physical adultery after already committing adultery in his heart. When he stepped out and saw Bathsheba, he could have said in his mind, wow, she is gorgeous, and then turned straight around and he would have nipped that sin in the bud. He could have stopped it in its tracks, and, but he didn't. But that's what we have to do. Stop lust in its tracks. Job talks about making a covenant with his eyes. Have we made a covenant with our eyes? As believers, we're called to live in the world and not of it. So we watch TV, we go to movies, we go online, but we're not indiscriminate about that. We don't do it carelessly. As one pastor puts it, we do these things With wise selectivity, constant vigilance, and often with vigorous repudiation. With wise selectivity, constant vigilance, and vigorous repudiation. Everyone is wired a little differently. What might be an issue for one person may not be for another. And that's why as Christians we don't legislate these things. And also... We try not to worry too much about what others do. We're called to be responsible for ourselves here, and we must make a covenant to mortify lust, kill it. Second practical point. This one's from Tim Keller. We're called to purity in community. The Sermon on the Mount is was given to a whole community of believers, we're not just a bunch of individuals. We're together in the church living for Jesus in this day and age. And I don't know who said this first, but they say that in Roman times, pagan people were stingy with their money and they were generous with their bodies. And that's kind of similar today if you think about people who don't believe in the Lord. Jesus' call to Christians is the opposite. We are generous with our money and we're stingy with our bodies. And, and so is the church, are, are we known for that? Uh, does the, the culture look at us and see that we're counterculture, that we're different? I hope so, because it's a sign that we're getting Jesus' design for our bodies and for intimacy and for our money, too. Finally, I want to end thinking about this. God's word brings us hope today hope there is hope if we've messed up in this area i want you to know that jesus cleanses jesus forgives though our sins are as scarlet they will be white as snow every one of us is tainted by lust but the bible tells us that by his grace the lord makes us pure And we become a a spotless bride prepared for her husband. Though we may have done things physically with someone that are only appropriate between a husband and wife, God forgives if you go to him. It's possible to dial it back. Though we have maybe taken in way too much filth with our eyes, we can stop. It's possible to get a warped view of women, corrected guys, over time. As you see people through the lens of God's word, and as you ask the Holy Spirit to give you the mind and the eyes of Christ. Sometimes pornography becomes an addiction, and you need to get help from others to get it under control. And I want you to know that as your pastor, I'm here if you ever want to talk. We need to more and more be able to talk about our struggles in life, in our Bible studies, in our small groups. Ones that are of the same gender would be most appropriate for this kind of stuff. But we can support one another, encourage each other, hold each other accountable. There is hope for our past, that it can be cleansed. And there's hope for you and for me today and for the future in terms of intimacy Matthew, same book, Matthew 19, 26. Jesus says what is impossible with human beings is possible with our God. We can control our impulses, my friends. It is possible. There are faithful marriages where husbands and wives are more attracted to each other than ever before. There are young people who are controlling themselves. There are young men and older men and married men and single men who are making a covenant with their eyes. And there are women and girls who are doing the same. Where the world is totally fatalistic about our desires and passion. If they're fatalistic, if someone's fatalistic, that means they're saying, this is inevitable. The world is totally fatalistic about our desires, our impulses. They say we have to act on them. We're going to do it. But the reality is we don't have to. We who belong to Jesus, we live our lives under the power of his lordship in all areas of our life, including our bodies, our hearts, our minds, and our thoughts too. It's a real power that believers experience and have In Jesus, in the Holy Spirit, in our lives, in the Spirit, in the community, in the church. And we can call down to him for help in all areas of our life, including this one. When you give your life to Jesus, and it's my prayer that everyone here has and will, and when you know him as your loving bridegroom, it's possible to escape the ruin that lust brings and instead It's possible to enjoy men and women, married and single. All of us, it's possible to enjoy this powerful gift of God, purity.